0: Welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud premium mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit, for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing, and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge. My opinions do not represent that of my employers. Last podcast episode, we reviewed hyperbilirubinemia and why it is so common in newborns. If you have not already listened, I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to our 32nd podcast episode, Elevated Bilirubin Levels in Infants, Why Does It Occur? To listen, head to empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash episode 32. In this podcast, we are going to review the recommendations for screening and managing hyperbilirubinemia. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends universal screening of bilirubin levels in newborns, so we will review how that can be done, when it should occur, and when it should be repeated. I also review the risk factors that make certain infants more susceptible to elevated bilirubin levels and how those risk factors contribute to guidelines for the treatment plan. I discuss the nomograms commonly used that guide the care of identifying infants at risk as well as when they should be treated. And finally, I discuss phototherapy, the primary treatment method used to treat hyperbilirubinemia, I review how phototherapy works to lower bilirubin levels and review additional considerations to follow when caring for infants undergoing treatment for hyperbilirubinemia. Whether you are a neonatal clinician or a parent, this review on management of hyperbilirubinemia will be beneficial. Hyperbilirubinemia is incredibly common in neonates. Clinicians who care for infants, whether they are a term newborn in the nursery or an infant in the NICU will screen for and manage infants with elevated bilirubin levels. And parents of either term healthy infants or those critically ill in the NICU will hear about their infant's bilirubin levels. So it is crucial that you understand why it is so essential to screen for and manage elevated bilirubin levels. So let's not waste any time and let's get to it. This episode of our podcast is sponsored by Neotech. Whether you are a NICU parent or a NICU clinician, it is likely that you have encountered Neotech products. Neotech manufactures innovative products specifically for newborns and patients in the NICU. With their goal to make a difference in the quality of treatment for premature infants and neonates, they also strongly consider the impact of their products on parents and clinicians. On this podcast episode, I review hyperbilirubinemia and the use of phototherapy as a treatment method. Any infant who receives phototherapy needs to have eye shields in place. And with Neotex Neoshades, they have you and your baby covered, literally. I can speak both personally and professionally to the quality of Neotex Neoshades. My son required phototherapy very early on while he was in the NICU and I so appreciated knowing his eyes were protected and that there were eye shields available for his small size. As an NNP and clinician, it is imperative to have eye shields on our patients that fit appropriately and remain in place. Neotech offers two different types of phototherapy eye shields, either with a head strap or tabs to secure them in place. Each version features their cute sunglasses design, and they are available in three different sizes, To fit all neonates, visit neotechneoshades.com to request your free sample or find the link in our show notes. I know there are a lot of tips I love to give new NICU parents, but one of my favorite bits of advice is to always celebrate every milestone your baby or babies achieve during their NICU journey. If you have not figured it out already, you will quickly learn that your NICU baby is incredibly strong and resilient. The milestones they conquer each and every day will absolutely amaze you. Do not miss out on celebrating and capturing one single milestone along your baby's journey with our NICU Milestone Cards. We have a collection of 26 milestone cards that are unique, colorful, and gender neutral to help you capture every one of your baby's milestones during their time in the NICU. Each card has a place for you to write the date your baby surpassed that particular milestone so you will never forget it. I so wish I had beautiful milestone cards to see each achievement my son William surpassed, from opening his eyes, to no longer being on phototherapy, being weaned off the ventilator, to taking his first bottle, and yes, eventually graduating from the NICU. Go and grab your baby set of downloadable milestone cards at empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash NICU products, or find the link in our show notes. Now back to the episode. Before we dive into the management of hyperbilirubinemia in infants, I'm going to briefly review why infants are so prone to developing elevated bilirubin levels. Jaundice or yellowing of the skin is caused by elevated levels of bilirubin in the bloodstream. We as humans constantly form bilirubin, and it is formed in our bodies once our red blood cells are broken down. For us to effectively remove bilirubin once it is formed in our bodies, it has to be changed into a form that the body can excrete, and this is done through a process called conjugation. Conjugation occurs in the liver and must be done so the bilirubin can be converted into water-soluble bilirubin pigments. Once the conversion occurs, the bilirubin can be naturally excreted through our stool and to a lesser degree filtered through the kidneys and excreted in urine. Elevated bilirubin levels, otherwise known as hyperbilirubinemia, occurs when bilirubin is made faster than it is removed due to either decreased conjugation or a reduction in the elimination. Bilirubin that is not conjugated or otherwise called unconjugated can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause damage to the brain. As I discussed in our last podcast episode, the reason hyperbilirubinemia is more predominant in newborns is due to their higher blood volumes, as well as their shortened lifespan of red blood cells. The red blood cell lifespan for infants is 70 to 90 days on average, as opposed to the typical 120 days of an adult. The typical bilirubin load of a newborn is two to three times that of an adult. So the larger volume of red blood cells, coupled with the shorter lifespan of them, results in a large amount of red blood cell breakdown and an overproduction of bilirubin. If bilirubin levels are not closely monitored and treated in infants, toxic levels of bilirubin can progress to silent or symptomatic behavioral and neurological impairments. Unconjugated bilirubin gets reabsorbed and deposited into the brain tissue, which leads to encephalopathy, brain damage, and hearing loss. Acute bilirubin encephalopathy, or ABE, is acute, progressive, and can be reversible if treated with aggressive interventions. If the elevated bilirubin levels are not treated, once the infant develops ABE, it can lead to what was previously known as kernicterus, but is now referred to as chronic bilirubin encephalopathy. Infants with chronic bilirubin encephalopathy suffer from irreversible or chronic brain damage that leads to permanent impairments. Now, bearing that in mind, it will hopefully help you to understand why we as neonatal providers assess, screen, and monitor infants so closely for signs of jaundice and elevated levels of bilirubin in the first few days and weeks of their life. Bilirubin levels in overall healthy term infants progressively increase during the first 96 to 120 hours after birth. Then they typically gradually decline over the first week of life. The rate of decline is dependent upon the maturation of the infant's liver, initiation of feedings, the motility of the gastrointestinal tract, and the ability of the infant to clear its bilirubin load, especially in preterm infants. For those infants with an uncomplicated clinical course, the decline typically commences by the seventh day of life. As we discussed in the last episode, there are some additional risk factors that place certain infants at an increased risk for developing elevated bilirubin levels, including, but not limited to, blood group incompatibilities like RH hemolytic disease, ABO incompatibility, G6PD, infants with polycythemia, excessive bruising, and those born prematurely. Infants with hyperbilirubinemia that are screened monitored, and treated appropriately and in a timely manner, even those with risk factors, almost all have benign outcomes and do not develop adverse neurological effects. But due to the potential risk for elevated bilirubin levels to cause irreversible brain damage if it goes undetected or untreated, all-term and late-preterm infants should be physically assessed and evaluated for hyperbilirubinemia. To properly assess an infant for jaundice, In a well-lit area, the clinician should gently blanch the skin with their finger to reveal the color of the skin and subcutaneous tissue, although we must remember that the changes in skin color may be more difficult to appreciate in children with darker skin. With this in mind, it is one of the main reasons that a physical assessment alone is a suboptimal screening tool to evaluate for jaundice, so all term newborns should be evaluated for hyperbilirubinemia with a transcutaneous measurement or a serum value. Each institution has a systematic approach in place to identify and treat infants that are at risk for elevated bilirubin levels, but the timing may vary. The American Academy of Pediatrics has outlined clinical guidelines to assist clinicians in identifying infants at risk for developing severe hyperbilirubinemia. Many hospitals screen newborns at 24 hours of age, and at least daily thereafter. Screening should be completed earlier than 24 hours if an infant begins to appear jaundice prior to 24 hours of age or if they have a positive direct antibody test or a positive Coombs test. Additionally, if an infant that is feeding poorly or displays a lack of energy may also warrant an earlier evaluation for elevated bilirubin levels. The American Academy of Pediatrics has also identified important risk factors that may place an infant at an increased risk for hyperbilirubinemia, including a gestational age less than 38 weeks, infants that are exclusively breastfeeding, particularly if nursing is inadequate and weight loss is excessive, a previous sibling with a history of being jaundiced, a cephalohematoma and or significant bruising, infants that are of East Asian descent, and as I previously mentioned, if there is a hemolytic disease or noticeably jaundiced skin in the first 24 hours. The final risk factor is a pre-discharge total serum bili or transcutaneous bili and the high risk or high intermediate risk, which I'll explain what exactly that means now. Now the high or high intermediate risk comes from a nomogram that was developed and published back in 1999 by Bhutani, Johnson, and Sivieri they published an hour-specific bilirubin nomogram in attempts to predict subsequent hyperbilirubinemia. It was this particular nomogram that led to the development of the 2004 and the 2009 American Academy of Pediatrics clinical guidelines for managing hyperbilirubinemia in infants greater than 35 weeks gestation. I am gonna go into some detail explaining some of the nomograms used to guide practice today. It will not be too in-depth, But for me, I always understand concepts more if I can visually see it. So to see the particular nomograms I will be referring to throughout the episode, head to empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash Billy. That's empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash B-I-L-I to go and grab your document. Now, the 1999 Bhutani Nomogram, which is figure one from the images we provided, is still widely used today and guides practices across the country. The nomogram allows clinicians to plot the infant's transcutaneous or total serum bilirubin value based on their hours of age. Once the value is plotted, the clinician is able to identify if the infant is in the low risk, low intermediate risk, high intermediate risk, or high risk category. By using the nomogram, the quote-unquote risk refers to the risk that the infant's subsequent bilirubin level will be greater than the 95th percentile. With the 1999 Bhutani nomogram, not only are there lines to identify the infant's risk from low to high, but there are also percentages. I mention these because at times the percentages are mentioned rather than the risk to guide practice. Infants within the high risk zone are also referred to as greater than the 95th percentile, high intermediate greater than the 75th percentile, and low intermediate greater than the 40th percentile. As I said, it is the Bhutani nomogram that is still widely used today throughout institutions. But there was a recent study in 2021 by Barr et al. that reviewed the Bhutani nomogram and attempted to fill in some gaps in knowledge with some new data and research. With their 2021 study, They developed a modified nomogram that includes the ability to plot infants less than 12 hours of age, which the Bhutani nomogram does not allow for. And after collecting additional data from participants, they created a new nomogram. The authors from this study are currently using their new nomogram in their Utah hospitals, but it has not been fully adapted elsewhere, nor is it currently endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So, for today, the recommendations I will be discussing are based on the most recent recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, many centers are actively using transcutaneous bilirubin measurements as a screening tool. Transcutaneous spectrophotometric measurement is a technique for estimating serum bilirubin that is non invasive, fast, and relatively inexpensive. When used properly, transcutaneous bilirubin measurement is a reliable identifier of hyperbilirubinemia in newborns from a variety of ethical backgrounds. A 2016 study by Taylor et al. found that transcutaneous bilirubin measurements can be used effectively to screen newborns for jaundice during their hospitalization after birth. Transcutaneous bilirubinometry works by emitting a beam of light into the skin and measuring the intensity of the wavelength of light that is reflected. It is based on optical spectroscopy, which relates the amount of light absorption by bilirubin to the concentration of bilirubin in the skin. To obtain the measurement with transcutaneous bilirubinometry, the handheld meter is gently pressed against the sternum or forehead of the infant it provides an immediate bilirubin level result. By using the transcutaneous bilirubin screening tool, it saves time, reduces cost, and minimizes the pain and trauma associated with obtaining a serum value. Once the value is obtained, it is plotted on the nomogram based on the infant's age and hours. Now, Although transcutaneous bilirubin measurements have been shown to provide a reasonably accurate estimate of the total serum bilirubin, it is just a screening tool to help providers identify infants at risk for developing hyperbilirubinemia. If the transcutaneous bilirubin value is beyond the threshold for either the institution's guidelines or the individual provider, a total serum bilirubin will be drawn. The total serum bilirubin, which is the total amount of bilirubin in the blood, is the gold standard bilirubin measurement, and it is done by a lab draw, typically from a heel stick. Some institutions have specific guidelines for the clinicians to follow to direct them when a serum bilirubin level should be drawn based on the transcutaneous bilirubin value and then based on where it falls on the nomogram. When referring to bilirubin levels we are speaking of the total bilirubin level. If you ever hear the term direct bilirubin, it is referring to conjugated bilirubin, which is followed, and if elevated, indicative cholestasis, which is beyond the scope of this particular episode. But I just wanted to clarify that for you. Currently, it is recommended to send a total serum bilirubin level if the transcutaneous value is at 70% of the total serum bilirubin level recommended for phototherapy, if the transcutaneous bilirubin is above the 75th percentile on the Butani nomogram, or if the transcutaneous value is greater than 13 milligrams per deciliter at the infant's follow-up post-discharge. Now, to determine if an infant needs to be treated with phototherapy, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends to plot the value on the guidelines for phototherapy nomogram, which is figure two in your document. With the guidelines for phototherapy nomogram, it again allows the clinician to plot the value based on how many hours old the infant is at the time of the bilirubin draw. This particular nomogram factors in hyperbilirubinemia neurotoxicity risk factors, including isoimmune hemolytic disease, G6PD, asphyxia, sepsis, acidosis, and an albumin level less than 3 mg per deciliter. The neurotoxicity risk factors encompass those that might increase the risk of brain damage in an infant who has severe hyperbilirubinemia. The risk factors help guide the clinician when they are making the decision whether or not to initiate phototherapy or consider an exchange transfusion. With the neurotoxicity risk factors in mind, the nomogram is broken down into infants at a lower risk, or those greater than 38 weeks gestation and well, infants at medium risk are those greater than or equal to 38 weeks with risk factors, or 35 to 37 and 6 seventh weeks and well. And finally, those infants at higher risk, or 35 to 37 and 6 weeks with risk factors. Many of the electronic medical records in hospitals today have a tab or an area for us clinicians that automatically plots the bilirubin value with the infant's hours of life. Additionally, there is an online Billy tool that is convenient if the tab is not available. When infants are in the hospital, providers need to evaluate the bilirubin level and decide if or when it needs to be repeated. Once there are two values obtained, it is helpful to plot the data on the nomogram to assess the rate of rise. The American Academy of Pediatrics also developed some algorithms to help guide the provider whether or not the infant needs to have a bilirubin level repeated, how soon, or if they should consider treatment with phototherapy. Phototherapy is the most commonly used treatment for elevated bilirubin levels. It is convenient, non-invasive, and most importantly, effective in reducing bilirubin levels. Phototherapy is the use of a visible light, specifically blue wavelengths that irreversibly convert bilirubin in the body to a water-soluble isomer through several mechanisms. Once it is converted to water-soluble substance, it is then able to be excreted by the baby's body without the need of further metabolism by the liver. The goal of phototherapy is to blunt the rise of the serum bilirubin and prevent its toxic accumulation in the body and the brain. The photoisomerization of bilirubin begins almost immediately once the infant is exposed to the phototherapy light. There is an incredibly strong relationship between the dose of the phototherapy and the rate of decline in serum bilirubin levels. The dose of phototherapy is determined by the wavelength, range, and peak, the irradiance or intensity, the distance between the light and the infant's skin, and the body surface area exposed. The distance between the light and the infant should be 15 to 20 centimeters, and the goal is to expose the greatest amount of surface area. So the newborn should be naked, except for a diaper and an opaque eye shield. It is important to ensure that the eye shield does not cover the nose or slide off the orbits of the eyes. The eye shield protects the infant's eyes from retinal damage and should be used with all phototherapy devices, including billy blankets. There are several phototherapy devices that are commonly used commercially, including overhead or spotlight phototherapy lights, meaning they are above the infant or a ribbon blanket that is under the infant. Blue LED lights are preferred and phototherapy lights do not emit UV light. It is common when speaking of phototherapy treatment to refer to it as single, double, and or triple or intensive. The terms refer to how many pieces of equipment are used to deliver the phototherapy. Obviously, the more light that is on the infant, the more intense the treatment. And although you may be thinking, then why not just automatically put each infant on three lights? But phototherapy should be treated just like a medication, and only the necessary amount needed should be used. Phototherapy is safe, but there are some potential side effects, including skin rashes, hypocalcemia, and it does interfere with mother-infant interaction. Loose stools are also common, and this is attributed to the increased excretion of the unconjugated bilirubin from the intestine, which is what we want, but we need to closely monitor the infant's skin and hydration status. There's also the potential for the infant to overheat and or become dehydrated if the infant is not receiving enough breast milk or formula. Some infants may develop a dark, grayish-brown discoloration of the skin and urine known as Bronze Baby Syndrome. It is not harmful and will resolve without treatment after a few weeks. Now, while caring for the infant who is being treated with phototherapy, it is important for clinicians to closely monitor the infant's temperature. It is recommended to use the skin control mode while treating an infant with phototherapy to ensure normal thermia. Although the more advanced phototherapy devices are not supposed to produce additional heat, it is still possible. With the likelihood of loose stools, it is important to monitor the infant's weight as well as their intake and output. Excessive fluid loss via the skin is common with all newborns, especially in smaller infants, but the addition of phototherapy can exacerbate it. Term infants should continue to breastfeed while being treated with phototherapy at least 8 to 12 times per day, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations. If there is concern for dehydration, the infant may need to be supplemented with expressed maternal breast milk and or donor breast milk if it's available or formula. The nutritional aspect is incredibly important for infants with hyperbilirubinemia because poor caloric intake and or dehydration associated with suboptimal breastfeeding can contribute to the development of hyperbilirubinemia. Routine supplementation with IV fluids is not recommended. It is typically up to each provider and based on the severity of the hyperbilirubinemia whether or not the infant can be removed from all of the phototherapy lights during breastfeeding to encourage parent-infant attachment. But at the very least, the eye shields should be removed during breastfeeding when possible to promote mother-infant attachment and with each assessment to properly evaluate the infant's eyes and clean them as needed it is key to ensure that the largest skin surface area of the infant's body is positioned in the center of the light where the irradiance is the highest. Although exposure to sunlight is known to lower bilirubin levels, direct exposure to sunlight is not recommended for infants due to the risk of sunburn, the exposure to UV radiation, and risk of overheating. The provider will continue to monitor the infant's bilirubin levels during phototherapy treatment to monitor its effectiveness. But it is important to remember to turn off all of the phototherapy lights during the lab draw because the light will act on the bilirubin pigments in the samples, giving erroneous data. Your infant's provider may also order additional labs, especially if the infant does not respond as quickly to the phototherapy as expected. If not done so already, the infant's blood type should be tested along with a direct antibody test or a Coombs test. This is always done for any infant whose mother has type O blood or one who is RH negative to monitor for any potential incompatibilities. However, I want to remind all clinicians that if you have an infant who either does not respond to phototherapy well or one who has significant rebound hyperbilirubinemia, to retest the direct antibody test. I once had a case where an infant I was caring for had significant rebound hyperbilirubinemia who initially had a negative Coombs test, and my collaborating neonatologist recommended I repeat it, and sure enough, it came back positive. As we spoke about in our previous podcast episode, any infant who is Coombs positive or has a positive direct antibody test are much more likely to develop hyperbilirubinemia due to their hemolysis, and they may require extensive prolonged phototherapy, as well as the potential for rebound hyperbilirubinemia. A CBC or complete blood count is often drawn to evaluate for anemia or polycythemia, which both may contribute to hyperbilirubinemia, as well as a reticulocyte count. If the retic count is elevated, it is indicative of hemolysis, which helps to explain at least a significant part of the rationale for the hyperbilirubinemia. A G6PD test may also be helpful, especially in infants of African, East Asian, Mediterranean, or Middle Eastern descent, or if the total bilirubin level is elevated. The G6PD results may take 24 to 48 hours in some centers, so it should be drawn early if there is a high level of suspicion. It is also recommended once bilirubin levels become elevated to draw a total and direct bilirubin to monitor for other potential diagnoses. Phototherapy, when used effectively, results in a decline of the total bilirubin level of at least 2 to 3 milligrams per deciliter within 4 to 6 hours and a 25 to 40% decrease after 24 hours of treatment. Once the bilirubin levels have gone down to an acceptable level and phototherapy is discontinued, the infant may experience rebound hyperbilirubinemia. This is due to the rise in the rate of bilirubin production that exceeds its elimination, but is typically an elevation of no more than 1 to 2 milligrams per deciliter. With that said, it is important for the provider to follow the total serum bilirubin levels After the phototherapy has been discontinued, follow-up total bilirubin measurements after phototherapy has been commenced is recommended to be done 18 to 24 hours later. It is reasonable for providers to follow this value as an outpatient, but that will vary with each infant. Additional treatments used for the treatment of hyperbilirubinemia if the levels continue to rise despite intensive phototherapy include the use of IVIG intravenous immunoglobulin has been shown to reduce the need for exchange transfusions in RH and ABO hemolytic disease. And finally, I'm going to briefly touch on an exchange transfusion. Luckily, exchange transfusions are not commonly used anymore as a method to treat hyperbilirubinemia. Between early identification of infants at risk for hyperbilirubinemia and improved treatment methods like phototherapy and IVIG, it is rarely needed. Exchange transfusions are an emergent, life-saving procedure that replaces an infant's blood with donated blood to quickly lower the bilirubin level. It is an expensive, time-consuming procedure that can only be done in a high-level NICU, but it is essential if an infant's bilirubin levels are nearing toxic levels. Now, What I just reviewed applies to term infants, or those born greater than 35 weeks gestation. Hyperbilirubinemia in preterm infants is more common, more severe, and typically lasts longer. As you may recall from our previous episode, I explained how preterm infants are more vulnerable to hyperbilirubinemia because brain toxicity occurs at lower levels than it does in term infants. With this in mind, the threshold range of when to initiate phototherapy is lower when compared with term infants. There have been some studies that have led to guidance for clinicians to assist with their management of hyperbilirubinemia in premature infants, but may vary between institutions. The same principles, though, do apply to preterm infants in regards to monitoring bilirubin levels, treatment with phototherapy, IVIG, and exchange transfusions. In general, universal screening before a term infant is discharged home is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Additionally, appropriate follow-up after discharge is essential. The bilirubin levels will continue to rise over the first few days, and many mother-infant couplets are being discharged just 24 hours after delivery when bilirubin levels have not reached their peak. So, screening infants and ensuring they have proper follow-up post-discharge is essential for the safety of all newborns. Occasionally, infants may have a delay in their discharge just to ensure proper bilirubin follow-up, especially if it occurs on or around the weekend. Term infants discharged from the hospital should have appropriate follow-up within one to two days based on the provider's recommendations. Parents should also be given education on signs or symptoms to monitor for once their infant is discharged home. And parents, if you're listening, please notify your pediatrician or head to the emergency department if your infant appears jaundiced, will not wake up for feedings, and or if they are lethargic and not acting well. Using a systematic approach with universal screening in combination with the clinical factors Specifically, gestational age and exclusive breastfeeding is essential in identifying infants at risk for hyperbilirubinemia. Once the transcutaneous bilirubin measurement or the total serum bilirubin have been collected, the hour-specific nomogram provides the clinician with an immediate mechanism for evaluating the degree of hyperbilirubinemia and the need for additional surveillance and testing while the infant is in the hospital. All of this, coupled with targeted follow-up, will prevent the risk of infants developing bilirubin encephalopathy or any brain damage. I hope this review on screening and management of hyperbilirubinemia in infants has been helpful. Whether you are a neonatal clinician or a parent, it is important to understand the importance of screening infants for elevated bilirubin levels. With the recommendations provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics, It helps to guide providers with the use of a systematic approach as well as guidelines to treat our specialized neonatal population. Although neonatal jaundice is common, the intensely negative effects that can occur with inadequate screening and treatment are luckily much less common due to the guidelines given to us as providers and the effective treatment methods available. Remember, if you have not already listened, I encourage you to go back and listen to our 30 second podcast episode, Elevated Billy Levels in Infants Why Does It Occur? And to grab your document with the nomograms mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnickyparents.com forward slash Billy. And as always, we ask that you share our podcast or this specific episode with anyone who would gain some value from it. For show notes, references, and links mentioned in the episode, including how to get your free sample of Neotech's phototherapy eye shields, head to empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash episode 33. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear, so make sure you let me know in the comments section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.